So this morning, I'm going to start in Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. If you've been here from the beginning of our study in Romans, which started in September 24th, 2017, although it was not continuous because it was interrupted by COVID, you would have heard 80 hours of teaching in the book of Romans so far. That's 80 hours. All those messages are online if you want to go back and catch up. Thus far in Romans, we've looked mainly at doctrinal truths. And sometimes that does get a little wearisome for people. But let me remind you that sound doctrine is the foundation for sound Christian living. The practical section of the book of Romans begins in chapter 12. So I was thinking about that. and Why not teach topically? which I occasionally do, like last week with the message on serving the Lord with gladness. Because verse by verse is what gives you the Bible in context. And if you become separated from a local church for some reason, or due to persecution, which is not a far-fetched idea anymore as anti-Christian sentiment grows in the world, and here in our country, if you know your Bible and sound doctrine, you will be able to stand for the truth. You will be able to teach the Word of God to your children when they may not have a church to rely on. The history of the Christian church shows that persecution has always been the constant. It has never let up in the world. And while it has not reached the level of physical persecution or imprisonment here in America, Christian beliefs are under attack in today's culture where right is wrong and wrong is right. So you need to know, and your children especially need to know, what they believe and why they believe it. It's just not enough to know what you believe, but you must know why you believe that. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, Continue thou in the things which you have learned and been assured of knowing of whom you have learned them. And from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures. Praise God for those children who grow up with the knowledge of the Word of God which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Romans chapter 9, Israel past. Romans chapter 10, Israel present, right there in Paul's day. Romans chapter 11, Israel future. It's just really three wonderful chapters in the Word of God. And what a future it is for the nation of Israel. Paul concludes this chapter with a doxology. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Now that's the exclamation point on Romans chapter 11, so it should get you excited. That's how he concludes 
his message in Romans chapter 11. But it begins with the matter of the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is his attribute which tells us that we can be certain that he will always be true to his word. What he promises unconditionally, unlike men, he will fulfill. None of us is absolutely faithful to our word. But God is always. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who, what? Love him and keep his commandments. Hebrews 10, 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly. That means without wavering, without fearing, without caving in. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What is the hope that we profess? It's the hope that we received in the gospel, the hope of eternal life. For he who promised is faithful. Amen. Sometimes, brethren, it may seem that God has not been faithful to his word in our lives. We feel that way sometimes. But we need to remember that what we experience now is not the end of the story. Whatever you're going through right now is not the end of the story. Romans 8.28, the verse you all know. And we know that all things, that's collectively, not the individual things. Individual things in our life can be very bad. We go through some really rough times. But he says all things collectively work together for good. God is working in them for good to them that love him and to them who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.18 says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. So Paul says God is working everything for good and one day we're going to see the glory of his working. What he's completed. So don't ever doubt God's faithfulness in difficult times. 1 Corinthians 1.9 again, God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Albert Barnes on that verse said, God is faithful. That is, God is true and constant and will adhere to his promises. He will never deceive. He will not promise and then fail to perform. He will not commence anything which he will not perfect and finish. The object of Paul introducing the idea of faithfulness of God in 1 Corinthians 1.9 is to show the reason for believing that the Christians at Corinth would be kept into everlasting life. That's why he inserted that, that dogmatic statement there. Listen, if God is not faithful because he goes back on his promises, he is not worthy of our worship. If God is faithful, not faithful because he cannot fulfill his promises, he is not worthy of our worship. But God is faithful, and he is worthy of everything we have to give him. He is worthy of our worship. God is faithful, but Paul raises the questions. If you are in Romans chapter 11 now, verse 1, Paul raises the question, I say then... That conjunction connects back to what he just finished saying in Romans chapter 10. I say then, hath God cast away his people? 
Has God forsaken his people? And that question comes on the heel of two conclusions. Number one, Gentiles had found God whom they had not been seeking after. Romans 10.20 And Israel, God's chosen people, continued to languish in disobedience and denial beside or despite God's standing invitation all day long I longed for them. I stretched out my hand to them but they would have none of him. Hath God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Benjamin of the tribe of Benjamin of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Has God turned away from Israel? Now, if you were to ask that question to many Christian theologians, pastors, and lay people today, the answer would be yes. The answer would be yes. They would say that because of God, Israel's rejection of Christ as their Messiah, he transferred the promises he made to them, beginning with Abraham, to the church. God gave Israel many chances, and they, and they, they denied him. They rejected Christ. They missed it. That's been called supersessionism. Big word, which means the church has superseded Israel in the plan of God. Or replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel in the plan of God. The dispensationalist hermeneutic maintains and has always maintained a clear distinction between national Israel and the church. And we need to remember or maintain that distinction or you're going to really have a difficult time understanding some of those prophetic passages in the Old Testament, many of them in the Minor Prophets. Ron Matson said this, Replacement theology was introduced to the church shortly after the Gentile leadership took over from the Jewish leadership. And the premises of this belief are that Israel, the Jewish people, and the land are replaced by the Christian church to fulfill the purposes of God and to become the historic, what they would call, continuation of Israel to the exclusion of the former, national Israel. The Christian church, they say, is the new Israel or the Israel of God, a view that did not appear until 160 A.D. So that's long after the time of Christ. Galatians 6.15, because this is the main scripture that they point to. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. It's not anything outwardly, it's inwardly, right? It's a circumcised heart. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them and mercy and, that's the Greek conjunction, chi, and upon the people or the, the Israel of God. Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Jewish scholar, says, Paul states that salvation is by faith. Paul states that salvation is by faith, resulting in the one new man, the new creation. He mentions two elements, circumcision and uncircumcision. This refers to two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, Two groups already mentioned by those very same terms in Galatians 2, 7, 8, and 9. And in Galatians 6, 16, here Paul pronounces a blessing on members of the two groups who would follow the rule of salvation through faith 
alone. The first group is the them, the uncircumcision. The Gentile Christians to whom and of whom he devotes most of his epistles. The second group, following the conjunction Chi and, is the Israel of God. The conjunction Chi is significant. The Israel of God, the second group, is the believing ethnic Israelites in the Christian church. That's the Israel of God. Does not Paul speak of himself as an Israelite? Romans 11.1. 1. If it were Paul's intention to identify the them of the text as the Israel of God, then why not simply eliminate the chi, the conjunction? And by the way, all other 65 occurrences of the term Israel in the New Testament are referring to national Israel, not the church, national Israel. And that's why I say you must maintain the distinction in Scripture between national Israel and the church. Now, the church is composed of who? Jews who are saved, right? And Gentiles. That's the church of God. When Gentiles get saved, they're part of the church. When Jews get saved, they're part of the same church. God has broken down the middle wall of partition. We're one body in Christ Jesus. So in answer to the question, has God forsaken Israel, Paul's answer is, is in the negative. It is dogmatic. He, it is, he says, certainly not. May it never be. Perish the thought. That's the strongest possible negation in the Greek. It's a decisive no. Paul is saying, do not entertain the idea. No. And the first example he gives is himself. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite. And then he makes this very clear that he's speaking about national Israel. You know, a national a Jew born of Abraham. Of the seed of Abraham. I'm a descendant of Abraham, and I am of the tribe of Benjamin. And he wanted to make that clear. If God had forsaken Israel, Paul would not have been saved. But, he's, but he was. But he was, and God was using him in a mar- marvelous way, not only to win Jews to Christ, but to, to win multitudes of Gentiles. So he says that he was an ethnic Jew from the seed of Abraham and from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, when the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Israel divided, the two southern tribes were Judah and who? And Benjamin. And it was the tribe of Benjamin that provided Israel with its first king, Saul. It also provided Israel with Queen Esther, whom God used to preserve the Jewish race. And the other significant person from the tribe of Benjamin, besides Ehud, was Saul of Tarsus, the man writing this epistle. And Paul states this link to Benjamin to demonstrate that God was saving ethnic Jews. He had not forsaken the nation. He was still very much at work among the Jews, and he has never ceased. We'll see in Romans that the Jews have been set aside temporarily, but that's all going to change. Israel has a glorious future. So Paul's goal is to prove that even though the multitude of Jews are not receiving Christ, there was a remnant that had found a spiritual blessing and attained the spiritual blessing. 
So his answer in the positive, he has not cast away his people. Verse 2, God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And cast away here is very strong terminology. It literally means to be thrust away. Like you're, you're finished with somebody. Just, just get out of here. You're done with them. And Paul, that's not the case. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. The people God foreknew is a reference to the ones that he had a special relationship with, Israel. The nation chosen by the Lord as a corporate body to serve God's purposes, to, to, bring, to be a light to the Gentiles, to bring the Messiah into the world, to give us the word of God, the oracles of God that, that we possess. Every book in the Bible was written by a Jew. Possibly with the, the only exception would be, would be Luke, some say, but there's a strong case that that, that may not be the case. So God's love for Israel, his chosen ones, is seen in his relentless pursuing grace. And that's why he said in Romans 10, 21 to Israel, he said, all day long I have stretched forth my hands into a disobedient and gainsaking people. Listen, you can walk away from the Lord. If you are a true believer... You can walk away from the Lord. You can turn your back on the Lord. God is not going to turn his back on you. He loves you as a father loves his son. And to bring you back to him, he will chasten you. He will correct you. But he will not cast you away. He will not abandon you. He wants you to repent, turn to him with your whole heart, and serve him the rest of your life. Bow the knee to Jesus, right? When every knee will one day bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, what does Lord mean? He's the Lord of your life. He's the Lord of our lives. Now we sin, but thank God we have forgiveness, right? For that sin, when we confess it. All right, so then look at Paul's illustration in the second part of verse 2, going through verse 4. Do you not know what the scripture said of, of Elijah? How he makes intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. We just read that story, 1 Kings 18. And dug down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. Woe is me, God. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So the reference here is to Elijah following his great victory on Mount Carmel. I have a, a picture here of, if you can, I hope you can see this, it's kind of light. This is on the grounds of the Carmelite Monastery in Israel. And that's the statue commemorating Isaiah or Elijah. It's on the location where 1 Kings 18 occurred, Mount Carmel. Elijah was, what do we know? A man of prayer, right? He was a man of prayer. He was a righteous man. And his prayer went like this. We read it in 1 Kings 18.36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have all done all of these things at your word. Now, focus in on this, verse 37. 
do you ever pray like this? This is not arrogance. This is holy boldness. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me. That's a cry out to God. That this people may know that thou art the Lord God and thou hast turned their heart back again. That's a bold prayer. Hear me, O Lord, hear me. Then the fire of the Lord fell in answer to this righteous man's prayer. And it consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it dried out, it sucked up all the water that was in the trough. The prophets of Baal were powerless. Elijah was powerful. No prayer, no fire. Weak prayer, little fire. Great prayer, great fire. Amen? But nobody stays on Mount Carmel for long. Shortly thereafter, Elijah was running. He was fleeing from Ahab's wicked wife, Jezebel. It says in 1 Kings 19, and we'll get there, that that he ran for his life. This mighty prophet of God who saw what God did burned up the sacrifices, the altar, the water, the stones, the wood. He's running for his life. So we could say that Elijah went from the thrill of victory to fear for his life and depression. He expressed the desire to die rather than face the wrath of Jezebel. He didn't want to go it alone anymore. That's what he was thinking. So you know what God did in his goodness in 1 Kings 19? He gives him angel food cake. He sends an angel to him, and he feeds him, and he's nourished and strengthened. And on the strength of that provision from God, he traveled for 40 days. He went to Horeb, but he lamented the fact that he was very zealous for God, but but still felt abandoned. Three times he said, I am alone. Chapter 18, verse 22, chapter 19, verses 10, and chapter 14. I am alone. And that is the way we all feel when we face a severe trial that leaves us physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. We feel alone and forsaken by God. The greatest miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament felt that way. So you can't tell me you never feel that way or have never ever felt that way. But let me remind you that it is often is never as bad as it seems. And that's the truth. God had not left Elijah on his own. There were other faithful men in Israel and in 1 Kings 19... 18, he says, I have left me 7,000 in Israel. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal 
and every mouth which has not kissed him. Elijah, you are not alone. I've got 7,000 who are still faithful to me. Praise God. That's the believing remnant. So Elijah was not alone, and Israel, in Paul's day, was not without a remnant of believers presently. That's why he brings this up, this story up. He says in verse 5, Romans 11, Even so at this present time also there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now let me remind you, Romans chapter 10, verse 1, Paul wanted all Israel to be saved. That's the desire of his heart. That presumes they all could be saved. God providing salvation for all men through Christ in his atoning death on the cross. The gospel, however, is the power of God into salvation to what? All who believe. All who believe. The Holy Spirit, John 16, 8, convicts the sinner of his need for forgiveness in Christ. The individual, upon the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, responds to the offer of the gospel with repentance and faith and then is saved. Romans chapter 10, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Here it is. By virtue of an individual being saved by faith in the elect one. Who's that? Isaiah 42.1. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, as God's elect one, is the corporate head of a new humanity, redeemed by his blood. Adam is the federal head of a fallen humanity. When we are united to, to Christ by faith, what Ephesians 1 says repeatedly, in Christ, we are part of his elect because we are united to God's elect one. We're part of that new humanity, that new corporate body called the ecclesia of God, the church. That is the election of grace. God has always planned to bring salvation to sinners in a way that takes seriously both their radical sinfulness and their responsibility to respond in faith to the grace of God. Salvation in its totality is all of grace. Nobody wills to receive Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit of God. Men can, however, resist the Holy Spirit. I counted some 20 references into the scripture where it speaks of the Holy Spirit and grieving and lying and insulting and re- re- resisting the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God cares for us, right? He, he's, he understands what we're going through. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. That's the goodness and grace of God. But you know what it says in Isaiah 63, 10? But they rebelled. In spite of that grace, they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. That means grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Acts 7.51, you men, these are the Jews, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just like your fathers did. So what Isaiah 63 said in verse 9 and 10 said of Israel, Paul saying the same thing. That was Stephen's prayer, actually, in, in Acts chapter 7. Same thing. They were doing the very same thing. 
In Hebrews 10, 28, it says, Anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? The Spirit of grace is the Holy Spirit. It's God reaching out, doing a dynamic work in people's life. But they can grieve him. They can vex him. They can insult him. They can blaspheme the Holy Spirit of God, as some did in Jesus. Listen, just as a coin would have a heads on one side and a tail on the other, salvation has a provision side to it and an appropriation side to it. Think of it that way. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. That's the provision side of the coin. But the sinner must be reconciled to God by faith. Same same scriptures in 2 Corinthians 5. That's the appropriation side of it. Now listen, a sinner cannot appropriate what God has not provided, which is why I believe Christ died for all. A sinner cannot appropriate what God has provided. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of God controls us. It powered, empowered Paul. It motivated him. He said it was the love of Christ. The love of Christ threw him for people. That led him to say, Woe is me, right, if I don't preach the gospel. Willing to die for it. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Follow his logic. That one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, or were dead. The first all, Christ died for all, and the second all, all are dead in sin, refer to the same group of people. The world that Christ came to save that was dead in its trespasses and its sins. Praise God for the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul made the connection to the remnant in Elijah's day with the present believing remnant in his day. They constitute the body of Jewish believers in Jesus who were saved by grace. God's grace is amazing right God's grace is amazing it saves it sanctifies and it keeps the Christian in the love of Christ amazing grace how sweet the sound it saved a wretch like me and you I once was lost but now I'm found was blind but now I see Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. God never forsakes his own. He will not forsake and cast away those whom Christ has purchased with his own blood. Then he goes in in verse 6, 
11, chapter 11. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more of grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. That's really simple to understand. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. You cannot work in order to be saved. That would nullify grace. Grace means unmerited. The unmerited favor or kindness of God towards you. You can't add anything to that without subtracting from the beauty, the wonder, the glory of the grace. The free gift of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his what? Mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration That's the, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's that divine, miraculous work of God in our life. And, and this is what Paul said similarly in Romans 4.4. 4. Look at this verse, Romans 4.4. 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace. You go to work, right? You, you expect to get paid, right? There's, there's no grace in that. They're not giving you a gift. You worked for it. Now, if you went to work one day and they said, you know what, you don't have to work today. I'm going I'm to give you the day's wages. That's grace. That's something you didn't deserve. So he says, now, to him that works is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Your employer owes a debt to you for your service to him. But to him, here it is. Look at it. To him that does not work but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. What, what does it tell? Tell us. Faith and works are mutually exclusive. But to him that worketh not, but believeth, tells us that faith, believing, is not a work. It's the work God does in your heart through the Holy Spirit of God. But it's not your contribution to salvation. But to him that worketh not, believeth on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is imputed. Imputed for righteousness. See, the ground of our righteousness and salvation is not our faith. It's always been the cross of Jesus Christ. It's always been the work on the cross. And listen, this is why I've said to you over and over again. I said last week, and I'm going to close with this. For every... For every time you look at yourself, your, yourself, you know, remember the selfie generation? For every look you, you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And one of my problems with people, because I've seen it, I've encountered them, I've counseled them many times, they're always introspective. And, and, and that brings up this doubt about their salvation. They're always trying to persevere. No, no. Look to the cross. Be certain of what Christ accomplished on the cross in reconciling the world to himself. And if you're united to him by faith, he's never going to abandon you. You're never going to have to go through life wondering, have I done enough? Am I sure I've done enough? Just rest in Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. Don't look to yourself. 
God will take care of you. He promised that, right? You go out of bounds, you keep wandering away. Or God will take care of you. Just keep resting in Christ. And that's the final thing I'll say to you this morning in this day in which we live because we do not know what tomorrow will bring. Friends, we could be on the brink of nuclear war. We can. We can. God forbid what that would be. But our rest, our place, our refuge is in God, is in Christ. Be still and know that he is God.